Free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to spice up the bedroom is even better. Whether you're buying a gift for your sugar baby or just for yourself, you can get 50% off at adamandeve.com when you enter the code CANDY at checkout. And that's not all. Adam and Eve will include 10 tantalizing free gifts, a sexy item for him, a special gift for her, and a third item all partners can enjoy. Plus, you'll receive six free spicy movies. But the best part is the free shipping. You can get all of this at adamandeve.com using code CANDY at checkout. That's C-A-N-D-Y. So Shelby, what are you getting me? Candy Girl Podcast. Fuck me, Daddy. <laughs> hey, all you candy sluts and bubble buds. Welcome to another week's episode of Candy Girl. I'm your host, Shelby. And I'm your co-host, Emily. And Emily nailed that new intro. I'm very excited about that. I've been waiting to call you guys that for weeks. <laughs> so today we're talking to Nihilist. She is an anarcho-communist, she is a lingerie and porn connoisseur, and a burlesque dancer. Very excited, so why don't you introduce yourself to us? Yeah, so I'm nihilistic, or just Naya, either either works. I started my career in sex work really recently, I think about like maybe a little over a year ago. I started with like lingerie review and burlesque, and those are different areas but they kind of overlap in terms of like general sexuality discourse and since then I think I've really kind of grown into different areas of sex work as well I also have an OnlyFans and I have like a lot of different kind of a lot of different sources of income and validation because I don't really like having all of my eggs in one basket. So I don't make all of my money from OnlyFans or from sugaring or burlesque or any of those things. So I do a little bit of everything. You're a jack of all trades. (laughs) Whore of all trades. (laughs) (laughs) That's the name of this episode. It's whore of all trades. I love that. Okay, amazing. So would you tell me a little bit about the difference between stripping and burlesque? Yeah, okay. So burlesque has a really interesting history. It originally started as a type of skits kind of along with vaudeville that were political in nature, and they actually didn't originally involve nudity. Burlesque kind of used to be the name for like a parody or a political parody that one did. Typically, it was parodies about the wealthy, interestingly enough. And that kind of evolved into like the like 1920s style burlesque that we think of sometimes where it's like, you know, scandalous for the times, you know, like you can see the knee and there are the gloves and flapper dresses and things like that. Then like in the 1970s, I would say burlesque kind of died out actually because porn became became a lot more accessible, easily accessible, and it wasn't something that people were spending their money to go do. And I think stripping has kind of had more of a like continuous reach since then. I think stripping is also newer in the sense that we know it with strip clubs. Then in like the early 2000s, there was a revival of burlesque, kind of spearheaded by Dita Von Tees, called Neo Burlesque, and that's kind of what we know today. There's a joke that one of my burlesque mistresses always tells that's like, we are burlesque performers and sisters or and strippers are sisters. She's like, what's the difference between a stripper and a burlesque performer? And she says, well, strippers make money 
and burlesque performers make costumes. And that's, that is kind of true. Another thing, uh, burlesque is, at least in my area, burlesque is a very queer phenomenon. Most of the people in my audiences are gay men and older lesbians. I definitely have some straight men who come and kind of, it's more like a strip club experience, but it's kind of, I think that sometimes when you go there for that, I think it's disappointing because there are different blue laws everywhere, which dictate what you can wear for different zoning. And like in Tennessee, for example, you're not allowed to show, you know, your nipple or your asshole and that's, or genitals and that's, you know, typical, but you also can't show anything under your boob. You can't show, you have to have like a four inch wide thong. You have to like, you can't show uh, your butt cheeks. You have to have like a strap of elastic that goes under your butt cheeks so that those are censored. And in Asheville, where I am, we can't show nipples, asshole, genitals or pubic hair of any sort so it's slightly more risque but I think it's more I think burlesque is more akin to drag in some ways that's how I got into it actually my um, younger sister is trans and she did drag for a long time and the communities overlap because it's kind of like lesbians do burlesque and gay men do drag although it's also a lot of trans women who do drag and men who do burlesque as well but there's more of a I do like it's kind of sexual but it's much more of a parody it's very satirical one of my acts which i think i'm going to retire soon because people are much more hesitant of cops in general so i think it's actually retired which makes me really happy but i used to have this act that started out with a sexy cop routine and everyone's like yeah sexy cop and then it ends with like nwa's fuck the police and piggy pasties and i have another one it's called pussy king and it's like a cowboy who like really likes eating pussy so they're very like you laugh a lot at a burlesque show. Like I bust a gut every time I go to a burlesque show. So the sexuality I think is kind of used to tell more of a story, but I also think that there are strippers who are able to tell more of a story with their routines than some burlesque performers. So they interlap, but I think they have slightly different audiences. Very interesting. I've never been to a burlesque show. In fact, I feel like the most exposure I've had to burlesque is that Christina Aguilera movie. So, or yeah. <laughs> like maybe Chicago the musical. But I feel like besides that, I I honestly, it sounds like you know so much about the history of burlesque too. Um, I I, I know some. My uh my burlesque headmistress Debonair. Love of my life, incredible lesbian performer, so hot, so kind. I love her. She, I start the way I started burlesque was I started with her burlesque academy, the Burlesque Academy of Asheville, and she has an entire week dedicated to the history of burlesque because it's really important that people like understand the history of the art form that they're participating in. That's really cool. So you said you kind of got into sex work. Okay, well, you said you got into burlesque because your younger sister was doing drag. So how did you get into more of the sex work stuff that you do? Um, I think it honestly, a lot of it started when I set up my Instagram for my burlesque account. So even though like all of these different genres of sex works performing sexually in person and in the services they provide, I think are very different. I think a lot of our social media presence looks very similar because of the censorship that we face and wanting to appeal to algorithms. So if you looked at my Instagram account, it was initially just like photos of me and lingerie and boudoir photos. And 
whenever you set up an account like that, you're going to get a whole lot of messages from men, a bunch. And some of them are just really awful and vulgar. And some of them are scams. There's this one guy in New York who offered me like $30,000 to fuck him. And I'm like, I don't, first of all, I don't think that's real. Second of all, like I'm a lesbian. That's a hard limit for me also this predatory, you know, like there are all these things that made that particular thing completely uncomfortable for me. But some of the direct messages were really respectful and, you know, asking for like Snapchat domination sessions or to purchase nudes. And so I started, like, I was open to that. It was a way to make money. And those were things that I enjoy doing. The domination, I think, is less I don't actually, okay, this is funny. I don't actually interact with men that often outside of my job. I never really had any male friends growing up. I, I date women. And so I don't, I, I don't really interact with men outside of that area. And so I think a lot of people think that I like really hate men or something, or that it's some active thing, or like that I would support like the ideals of femdom, feminine domination. And so a lot of people, I think, come to me for domination because of that. You know, like, I think there's this concept of lesbian findom that really works, but it's not, it wasn't actually something, it's something that I provide, but it's not really like my area of expertise, I think, because I think there's still this sexual gratification that comes from it, that I, I think I can get, have sexual gratification from interactions, but it's mostly because I'm an exhibitionist. So it's not the domination, dominating someone else, dominating a man doesn't do anything for me, but sending nudes of myself or videos of myself for money. I think that's really hot. I love that. And so I kind of, I had these opportunities. I started getting regular customers. People started coming to me for it. I realized I was good at it. And so I started marketing it. And I think I have like this online persona of this kind of like sexual being that like just translates in a lot of ways. Like I, again, I don't put all of my money into OnlyFans for a lot of reasons. They also have a bunch of tax evasion shit going on. So they might be going bankrupt anyways. <laughs> um, they're also not a very user-friendly platform, unfortunately. And they have all of these, you know, I really wish that there were more like women-run sex worker-run platforms. I think I'm switching over more to free because that's woman run um and also avn but there's not there's not a perfect uh interface because there it's not a perfect area in terms of legality in terms of red tape and you know those platforms have to deal with all the legality all of the red tape and then all of this like baggage that comes with making money off of sex workers but not wanting to be in a position where you actually support sex workers in any way and then I also do I don't even I don't think I could call it sugaring because I think sugaring is something that happens like I think people go out and they're, they say I'm a sugar baby or whatever and that's not that hasn't been my experience I've built a lot of relationship with men various men and they give me you know, $100 or whatever every month or every week, and I buy lingerie with it. And it's kind of, I think it's honestly kind of an ideal sugaring scenario, because it was like relationships that formed naturally. And I think we wanted the same things that are in sugaring, but it didn't, it feels more, I think it feels more natural or more legitimate. I don't know if it is more natural or more legitimate. And then I also just, I do a lot of custom work, which I also really like. So, and then I also have burlesque, which right now 
Right now, there's not a whole lot of burlesque because I think that the thing that makes burlesque different from, say, camming or anything like that is that it's in person. And so once you put burlesque on the internet, people don't spend money, people don't watch it because the thrill is kind of interacting and it being an interactive thing that you go out to a bar, you get some drinks and you go see burlesque and you interact with the performers. And there's a thrill in like seeing like those like naked performers around you that burlesque hasn't really been able to do online. And also I don't enjoy doing burlesque online. I enjoy doing online sex work and burlesque, but the overlap isn't really there for me. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of different genres, I think. <laughs> Emily, do you have any questions? I have lots of questions. <laughs> Shall we, you're on this dock with me. <laughs> I know, I know, but I always want to like hand, I want to do a smooth handoff. So you know that like you should ask some now. Do you have any questions? Yes. So <laughs> what I actually want to know about is a little bit off topic and I guess a little more fun. <laughs> what are the dressing rooms at burlesque shows like? How do all the girls interact? <laughs> or I guess uh, how do all the people interact? Yeah, so <laughs> it depends on the venue. I've never been in a dressing room that I was like, oh my god, this is a really nice dressing room. <laughs> it's normally like we're in like a, like a we uh, perform out this one bar for like a peep show event and we're pretty much in a supply closet backstage and at my favorite bar in the entire fucking world it's called the auditorium in Asheville North Carolina I god I love it with all my fucking heart I miss it so much we don't have any like heating or air conditioning so in the winter we're all huddled around in pasties and coats and honestly, my little lesbian heart kind of loves being backstage at burlesque shows. I was a figure skater when I was younger, and it kind of feels like that, except no repressed sexuality. I'm not like hiding in a corner being like, oh my God, do they think I'm looking at them? I'm like, oh my God, Deb, your tits are phenomenal. Oh my God, I want to have sex with you. You're so hot. I can't wait to see this number. Oh my God. And there's a lot of that. Not everyone's gay, but everyone's like that. You know, there's that kind of like... I don't know, I think slut solidarity is very strong, regardless of if you're actually attracted to other women, although I think a lot of us are. I think a lot of us, even if they aren't, they're like, oh my god, I want to eat you out so badly. And it's like, no, you don't. You're a straight girl. But that's really nice of you to say, thank you so much. I want to eat you out too. And it's almost, hi! Like, oh my god, I want to eat you out. <laughs> and it's also like, oh my god, you know, we're like, applying foundation to each other's asses, or trying to help each other, like, put carpet tape behind our asshole to, like, put the merkin like fully on this is also something i didn't realize when i heard merkin for the first time i thought that was like a fake bush that you would put other over a bush because that is what it like used to be um but any panty that doesn't have any straps is called a merkin so you apply it with like carpet tape or other any other like adhesive to like your like pubic area and then like behind your asshole <laughs> and um you have to really try not I mean if you have to pee afterwards you're kind of like fucked <laughs> um, or if you get your period you're also like which is also yeah no so it's a lot of like helping each other with things like that I don't know we take lots of selfies talk about our mental health I mean it's pretty talk about our sex lives or our relationships it's kind of like other I think talking shop but it's more like intimate because we're all used to seeing each other completely naked and there's this vulnerability that comes too 
so yeah honestly backstage at burlesque shows are really fun i <laughs> i really like it sometimes like i think the bigger the show the more awkward it is and like the more like out of town people that you don't know the more awkward it is but in, in general i think it's probably way more intimate than what we do on stage because there's not this guys but it's also it's also a little odd because I don't know the quote unquote real names of almost anyone I interact with. You know, I, we all know each other's stage name. And so to some extent, we all know personas of each other, which I think is true in any setting. But I think it's more obviously true in a performance setting or in a sex work setting where you're hiding parts of your identity from the audience or from other people for protection. And I think that makes it you know, there's like, we're so intimate with each other. And yet there's so much I don't know. I don't know what your family calls you. I don't know where you go to school. Although, you know, that, when you get to know people, you get to know them more. But it's definitely a kind of juxtaposition of some of the most extreme intimacy you can have and also lack of like complete like basic knowledge that most people like that met you at a coffee shop would learn. I love that. It sounds exactly how I imagine. <laughs> yeah, exactly how I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> what is the most challenging thing about performing? Uh, honestly, it's the anxiety beforehand, without a doubt. The like five hours before a performance are so stressful. Like I have awful stomach acid. I'm so anxious that I'm going to have left something like some part of my costume. And if you've left part of your costume in a burlesque routine, it can change your act from being hilarious to not funny or scandalous to illegal. Um, so there's so much kind of like pressure, like, oh my God, did I forget my like underwear? Did I forget my pasties? Did I forget my prop? Does my makeup look awful? Do I like the way I look today? Is my Are my pubes going to be visible to the audience? And if so, am I willing to take a $500 fine? To all the like, what about choreography? Like, am I going to forget my choreography? Like, am I going to be late? You know, just general, I think, nerves that are, I think, to some extent made more extreme because you're naked, but not necessarily because of the anxiety around being naked, but the anxiety around being naked in a way that is attractive and legal in that setting. And that's what I mean, that's without a doubt the worst part of it. Whereas like when I do content creation in my room, you know, I have as many takes as I can do and I get to choose to do it whenever I want to. I'll be like watching a TV show and I'll be like, I'm going to take some sexy fucking nudes for OnlyFans. And this is kind of like you have like a clock counting down until you're going to be doing this thing in front of this group of people. Sometimes I'll get a little anxious that like someone I know and do not like is going to be in the audience, but I'm kind of like whatever about that. Mostly it's the nerves. So there was one thing that stood out to me when you said you're worried about, you know, making something go from scandalous to illegal. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so it kind of goes like, a, again, with like the blue laws. The zoning for a strip club, the permits that a strip club has is very different than the zoning that a bar has. And I perform in bars. Most burlesque is sometimes it's in theaters, but mostly it's in bars. That's under the Bureau of Guns and Alcohol regulation. So 
there are certain things that you're not allowed to do. Again, you're not allowed to show your nipples or any genitals or any pubic hair. And in theory, if you're caught, it's a $500 fine for each violation, even if your pasty accidentally falls off. Now, I've never actually known anyone who's gotten that fine because normally there's not like someone from the federal government or the state government in the audience. Or if they are, they're like embarrassed about it. So they're not going to like say, oh, I work for the government. This is illegal. But it is something that you're always kind of anxious about. And it's also you get anxious about, too, just like any time when you're doing improv of any sort or choreography of any sort, when you have something, a piece malfunction, that's going to be really stressful on top of being more exposed than you consented to in that moment and on top of it being illegal. So there are all of these like things that make it really stressful. It reminds me of that time that uh, we went to that bar and I was wearing your top. So Emily and I are built completely opposite where she has like these beautiful boobs and then I have this huge ass, but that means oh, I love like it. when we borrow each other's clothes, it <laughs> never fits. And I was wearing this really cute romper of hers that definitely not fit my little tiny titties. And we were dancing at this club and my, I was kind of drunk and my top fell down and my boobs were exposed and I didn't notice right away. <laughs> there was a minute where I was like, oh, and I pull it up and I look across the bar and no one noticed it for one man and him and I made eye contact and he went, yeah. <laughs> he should have tipped you. I swear to God, damn. Yeah, we were real. I should have been like, pay up. Yeah, or one time Emily went to a, an engineering formal for her school with her professors and, and classmates and she flashed the whole bar it was very, very bold. Damn, yeah. No, it's it's always, luckily, I've never really had any, like, bad costume malfunctions, but the number of, like, frightened nipples that I've seen are, like, the, like oh, and then they have to change, especially when it happens at the beginning of a set, because then they have to do the rest of their set like this. <laughs> oh, no. And the secondhand anxiety is so bad. Oh, my God. It's like the like nightmares that we tell each other, like, oh my God, did you hear that her merkin fell off in front of an audience of like 200 people? And we're like, oh my God, how did she even do the rest of the set? Yeah. Would you just have to like get off stage at some point? I think if you could cover, if you were in a situation where you could find a way to cover yourself up, but if you can't cover yourself up or if you're so humiliated or so embarrassed, then yeah, you can just get off stage. <laughs> um, but you can't. I mean, it depends. It depends on the bar. Some bars are like way more lenient than is legal. Um, although I have to see, I've seen way more genitals and breasts at drag shows than I have at any fucking burlesque show ever. Oh my god! <laughs> like some performers, especially as soon as they go on estrogen, they're like, "Oh my god, everyone, look at my titties, feel my titties." And I'm like, "Yeah," but I'm also like, "Oh, no one's allowed to feel my titties." <laughs> That's not allowed. Yeah, so I would like to talk about the laws surrounding sex. Well, I mean, sex work in general, obviously, but especially performance sex work as far as like stripping and burlesque shows go because um, they seem really outdated. And also, you mentioned like you're not allowed to show pubes, which I feel like... (laughs) For for so many reasons. First of all, everyone's hair grows differently. Second of all, why? Why? (laughs) <laughs> so no, yeah. honestly that's something that really oh the pubes and it's also interesting because in the city where I live in Asheville women are allowed to be topless in public I've never actually seen anyone do it outside of this like topless festival that's actually run by a cult but you can google that if you want it's called gotopless.org it's run by the realist alien cult but no one knows that but I've never actually seen anyone topless in public besides for those events 
And so you're allowed to be topless in public, but not when you're performing, which is kind of weird. <laughs> but it's honestly probably for the best because like those people would get, be getting way too, but like our ticket prices would have to go way up for that. And then the, the pube thing really bothers me. Most burlesque performers end up having to like completely shave their bodies when they don't want to. I'm like really, really anti-shaving that area for myself. I think it's, I don't think most men who like really, because it's almost always men who are like, I need to have a bald vagina. I don't think they realize how much it sucks to shave that area. It is painful. Most of the time you get really, in my opinion, unattractive ingrown hairs. It's itchy. I personally, since I've started working in sex work, I've seen way more shaved vaginas than I ever had before in my life. And now I'm kind of used to the way they looked. But for a long time, I thought they looked terrifying. It was something that actively like freaked me out. And then there's also this concept, I think, as well of, you know, like as a society, we are we glamorize youth especially in women and young women and girls and that you know can look a lot like pedophilia and i think that every woman should be allowed to do whatever she wants with that area and i also think that the norms that dictate that the vagina should be shaved come from like kind of pedophilic desire so i personally don't shave that area and it means that i have to wear larger underwear than other people it's also difficult like my mom was pointing out the other day that like if you look at where does her pube start and her leg hair like where does where's that border she's like i think you know my hair goes down several inches onto my thighs like where do you say this is pubic hair and this isn't and you're allowed to have any other hair besides for pubic hair which is really really weird although that's okay. That's like the way that we talked about Merkins earlier. That's the original way that Merkins in burlesque shows, especially around like World War One and World War Two. You couldn't show your actual pubes, but people wanted to see pubes. Everyone wanted to see that. It was something that was illegal because it was desired and because we tend to make illegal what is desirable. And so they all had these vagina wigs on so you could see pubes that weren't real pubes. And that's less, no, normally now we only see that type of market and more like comedic sketches. But I, yeah, it's something that I have a lot of issue with. And I think the biggest issue is that it kind of takes away the choice for a lot of people. If you want to wear certain costumes, you have to do that. And, you know, we talk a lot about like what makes different areas of sex work and sexual identity and sexual practices in general empowering is having control over it. And so it's kind of you have less control over it because you're making this decision on your own. You're making the decision to shave, but it's based on all of these rules that you did not dictate. And that's really, really unfortunate. Good thing lawmakers aren't pedophiles. Am I right? <laughs> Oh yeah, we've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm sure it's just illegal on accident. They had no idea that those two <laughs> things were related. <laughs> so one thing that you made a side comment about, or one thing that you mentioned that I wanted to elaborate more on. So your mom is aware that you do sex work. Mm -hmm. Has she ever seen you perform? 
All the time. So actually my mom, <laughs> this is so funny, but so I started doing burlesque, right? My sister is a drag queen and my mom, my sister is much, much younger than I am. And so my mom would come to her for all of her shows and help make all of her costumes. And my mom and I go out, my mom and I are really close in general. We're like, She's one of my best friends in the entire world. We go out to bars together. We get drunk together. We get high together. We watch Trailer Park Boys together. We love each other. We go on vacations together. Like, God, I love my mom. And we were at a burlesque show together. And the performer was, like, swirling around her pasties. And my mom was like, you love your boobs. I bet you could do that. <laughs> and she paid for my burlesque classes because I was I went through eating disorder recovery and I had just gone through a breakup and I was having a really like difficult time relating to my body in an empowering way and she knew that that was something that I found empowering and so she paid for it I don't know if my dad knows that she paid for it but she paid for that I didn't let her come to my first performance because I was too nervous but she's come to almost everyone since then. She films most of my acts for me because you need to like fil have your acts filmed if you want to submit to different festivals and stuff. Um, she takes some of my photos even like for Instagram and stuff, depending on how like risque it is. But she's completely supportive. Some like she, I think she's even like seen my OnlyFans to some extent when I'm like scrolling through shit. We like, I don't know. I think that. I don't know. I'm I'm not really that uncomfortable being naked in front of my mother because like we were both naked the first time we ever met. Like I came out of her vagina and I can't think of a more intimate thing than that. So it's like I I think the thing that makes me maybe the most uncomfortable with my mom being at shows is me being scared that she won't like it, that she'll have like some critiques for me that are too like hard. But she no, she's entirely supportive. I think sometimes she's like anxious about stigma or I think she she can be anxious about how it's perceived but she is she's completely supportive of all of that she knows about pretty much all of the sex work I do when I first was starting like um doing like femdom sessions I asked her for some help coming up with like insults for penises Hers weren't that original, so I didn't use them, but <laughs> but she knows and she's supportive. My dad and I don't really talk about it. He knows that I do burlesque and that I do lingerie reviews and that I make money doing that. And that's pretty much it. We aren't as close. And I think it's a different dynamic when it's like a father and a daughter than it is a mother and a daughter, kind of inherently. But we're also just not as close as my mom and I. So it's not something that really like gets brought up and it's not something I think I would ever want to have a conversation with him about. Like I have seen a lot of stories about people like coming out as being a sex worker to their parents. And I don't think that's a conversation I ever intend to have with my dad because it's not really, you know, like, like I don't necessarily think he would be unsupportive, but it's not really relevant. He doesn't really need to know it. So yeah, there's kind of that dynamic. And then my little sister, she like, she, she knows about it, but I don't think all of it's like age appropriate for her to know. And so I'm like, go away. <laughs> um, like, you don't need to be looking at any of this or be like finding out more about this than is appropriate for your age. But she's definitely aware that I have like an OnlyFans and that I do burlesque. And sometimes I'm like 
Crystal, you need to get out of this room right now because I need to shoot content. And she's like, oh, how long do I have to be gone? And I'm like, an hour or so. And then we can watch Malcolm in the Middle or whatever. So, yeah. And then most of my extended family knows that I do burlesque. I think one of my cousins who's across the country even bought a like a sexy girl's calendar that I was in. And she's like, is it weird if I buy like this calendar that you're in? And I'm like, no, go for it. I'm also really, really open about it. Pretty much everyone that I went to college with, a lot of people that I went to high school with, all, pretty much all of them know about the work that I do. I'm pretty, I'm pretty public about it. Even I think I was taking an online class. I just recently graduated. I was taking an online class. And it was like, tell us some fun facts about yourself. And one of them was that I do burlesque. And no one even mentioned it when they were, you have to do responses. And no one even brought that up. But it's not something that I hide. And I think I'm very privileged to be in that position where I don't have to hide it. Because a lot of people, I think, face harsher stigma and are like met with a lot more instability when they're coming out with information like that. So I have a, a couple things that I want to ask. First of all, when so we used to have another co-host of this show who was a cam girl. And when she started camming, she had a lot of friends. She was very public about it. And she had a lot of male friends who would reach out to her and be like, oh, I want to see your cam shows. Like, where can I find it? Blah, blah, blah. So is that something that, because it sounds like a lot of people you know know yeah. that you do sex work. Is that something that you've experienced? Well, I don't really have any friends that are men. <laughs> so I think to begin with that, that kind of makes it different. But I have lots of friends who are queer women or just queer people in general. And most of them follow my sex work stuff. And they'll even like people constantly like that are friends with me or that went to high school with me or whatever ask, like, is it appropriate for me to follow this? Or, like, is it appropriate for me to do this? And I'm like, yeah, sure, of course. Like, I'm always flattered. And I even, like, I made, I make custom content. I love it. I have lots of friends that I, like, haven't seen in, like, five or six years that were probably maybe more acquaintances with that I'll, like, ask for, like, custom audio clips or videos. And I'm always so happy. I normally actually give them, like, extra content just because I feel like it. Because I'm like, oh, like, this is so nice. I love this. You're paying me to probably see me naked for free. Like, thank you. <laughs> so... I think all of the like people that I interact with in that way, it's very like consensual and welcomed. I think I think if I interacted with more men in my life, it might be a little bit more awkward. But I just, I just, I don't, I don't think I have that many close friends in general, and I definitely don't have any like close friends or even, even really acquaintances that are cis men. So it's not really like something I experience. Yeah, I was the same way for like most of my life. Honestly, I think I have two cis male friends. <laughs> I know I think I had like one I think I had two in middle school when I was doing some of my like socialist I used to like help run this like thing it's called like students for peace and justice and then when I when I was in high school I I did all my high school classes at the local college um and so when I was like 15 I started doing all of my college classes and I also helped like run organizations at the local college so I helped um run feminists working on revolutionary democracy which was so funny because I was like 15 and I was telling all of these like 18 like always 18 and 19 year olds thought I was so much older than them which was always hilarious but I think when I was doing that organizing, especially in like the Students for Peace and Justice, kind of anarcho-socialist communist groups, I was typically the only femme person in that group. And that, not with the feminist group, that was very different. But I think I was kind of used to being the only girl in that area. And none of them really have much of a social media presence. So they don't really interact with that. 
but honestly they some of them probably could be <laughs> awkward about it I think it's also weird though because they also knew me when I was a minor and that's inherently weird <laughs> there are some people who like are only a couple years you know older than me who um, knew me when I was a minor I don't think it's weird at all especially because I was like a very unconventional minor like yes I was 16 but I was also staying up till 2 a.m at college parties and taking 400 level classes and you know doing all of these things that no no one that age typically does I those are my friends and it'd be weird if my friends didn't interact with me like my friends because they were the only friends I had it's not like I was interacting with 16 year olds when I was 16 so they you know, that kind of complicates things, I think. Age of consent laws are so complicated because on the one hand, we need to protect people from predators and grooming as much as we can. And as someone who has absolutely been preyed upon and groomed, I think that's so important. And on the other hand, there are relationships, and this is, this is controversial, but there are relationships between minors and adults that are consensual and they're rare and it's not something to promote. But I think we have to understand the complexity of consent in order to better educate people about how to avoid being preyed upon and things like that. Age of consent laws didn't protect me when my high school teacher like was seducing me to some extent. Like that kind of stuff like was never something that was protected. You know, there are plenty of people who are like that as an adult, like I'm an adult and people, you know, say things to me and I'm like, oh my God, that's so inappropriate. That's so predatory. And then I, you know, yeah, I was a 17 year old with a 22 year old girlfriend and it was one of the healthiest relationships that I ever had. And, you know, like, I think real life is a lot more messy than we like to admit. And that messiness and understanding that messiness is what's able to, like, help us protect people as opposed to, like, pretending that everything is cut dry. When I was, you know, like a high a freshman in high school and I had a teacher who really fixated on me and never kissed me, never touched me, never talked about having sex with me, you know compared me to his wife, said I was better than his wife, all these other things that are really, really traumatic. But we, I think we get so fixated on touching that we lose all of the nuance of like the ways that abuse works. And you can have touching without abuse and you can have abuse without touching. Right. So this podcast needs to start going in a different direction. <laughs> yeah. Not because I disagree, but because... <laughs> we need more stuff on this. Yeah. We need we need more content. <laughs> Shelby, do you have anything to ask? Yeah. So earlier you mentioned burlesque classes and a calendar that you were on. And both of those things sound really interesting. So would you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of cities have burlesque academies, or even if there aren't like burlesque academies, I know there are a lot of online classes. Like my person, Debonair, she has online classes. And I think that's a really good way to start because it helps you build a character and get help with choreography and learn like tips and tricks. Um, and I know a lot of people, I think the majority of people who take classes like that don't end up becoming burlesque performers, but it becomes like this really nice way to channel their sexuality. Like there was, I think in the group of people that I took the class with, there's only think maybe one or two other people who continue to perform and a lot of people do it just because it like 
allowed them to kind of see this new part of themselves. I think it's kind of like how sometimes people take uh, pole dancing classes for the experience rather than because they intend to use them to make money. There was a uh, one of my classmates. Oh God, I love her. Um, she had been raised as a Jehovah's Witness. And with that came with a lot of like sexual repression and like really complicated ideas that she was trying to unlearn. And her stage name was Jehovah's Titness. Uh <laughs> love that. I love and that. so even if she, you know she doesn't really perform that much and we all we all have to call her by her like name or like real name because jehovah's titness doesn't roll off the tongue but god if it isn't a good fucking stage name and i think it was really an opportunity for her to process a lot of that experience in a setting with other people which is really intimate i think when you do online burlesque classes you kind of miss that because there's this huge vulnerability it is so hard like learning how to be sexy like being sexy whatever but those moments of intimacy it's kind of like when you're laughing during sex where it's like this is so incredibly intimate because it's kind of awkward and I'm more vulnerable than I've ever been and so I think it's a really like great way like for groups of kind of strangers to like figuring out how to do choreography together and dance together and act sexy together and be naked together is kind of terrifying and really empowering for a lot of people. And for the, for the calendar thing, I, it, honestly, it's not that much of a story. I swiped right with this photographer on Tinder, actually. He was like, just, he's a boudoir photographer. And that's actually how I found him was on Tinder, which was hilarious. Um, but he didn't, he was one of those people who didn't have any photos of himself, just of his work, which could have been a totally like horrible situation. I'm not saying that's how you should find a photographer. Um, but he was so professional. He even like, kind of, he like asked me to bring a friend. He was like, please, like, I was like, I don't think I'll bring a friend. He was like, actually, please, please do. It's just like, I would encourage that and super professional, way cuter than I had anticipated too. Yeah, I see this like faceless. I knew he was, all I knew was that he was a veteran and then I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't expect some fit Asian guy in his 20s to be the person behind the camera at all. Um, but he, uh, honestly, it was probably one of the best photography sessions I've ever had because it was, first of all, I didn't have, like I tipped him, but I wasn't, but it was $100 worth of uh, boudoir photos. It's what my Instagram used to be completely comprised of, to be honest. Um, and I brought a couple of changes of clothes and my friend like watched the office and made sure I wasn't going to be preyed upon. And uh, yeah. And then he, as a boudoir photographer, wanted to make a calendar. And he was like, do any of the people I've shot with want to be in it? And I was like, me, 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 me. I would love that. I don't even think that many people have purchased the calendar, but I own a copy of that calendar and I'm owning that calendar forever. Like I was Miss May and I want everyone to know I was Miss May, which was also the month that I was graduating and all these other things. I was like, it felt really good. <laughs> That's my birth month, so I'm <laughs> super excited. Yeah, no, honestly, it's one of my favorite. Like, whew, having a calendar of yourself on the wall it does great things to your ego. It really does. <laughs> I would believe that. My last bedroom, there was a whole wall that was just a mirror. It was like this massive fucking mirror. And like seeing myself every day, amazing. Love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we've touched a little bit on politics in this episode. Obviously, when talking about sex work, it's almost unavoidable because sex work and politics kind of go hand in hand in some aspects. But you're an anarcho-communist, and I would love to talk more about that, how you 
got to that point and exactly what it is? Absolutely. So first of all, I identify as anarcho-communist in a very loose sense. I align with both communist and anarchist ideals, and I also have critiques of both of those systems. And I think that when we talk about leftist political labels in general, people get really, really ridiculous about them. There's all this fighting between people who identify as Marxist-Leninists and Marxist-Leninist-Maoists and socialists and communists and libertarian socialists. And there's all of this infighting that I am not even remotely interested in. It's almost all semantics. It's not material for the most part. They're arguing about things that old dead white men said hundreds of years ago that are not relevant to my daily life. I don't think are relevant to most people's daily life. And so when I have those labels applied to me, it's because I want to like signal to other people who identify with key points of those systems of belief. I want them to see me as one of them. And what that really means for me on a material level is that I do not, first of all, is that I do not believe in capitalism. I do not believe that capitalism is the most ethical way to distribute resources. I don't think that it's fair. I don't think that it prioritizes the right uh, values. I prioritize general life and happiness over profit margins. And so for me, that is a really strong point of contention because the difference between a Democrat and a leftist is a million miles wider than the difference between a Democrat and a Republican. Not even remotely similar because they have really, really different core ideals. I don't think that anyone that we could elect could change the injustice that is systemic to our current political reality. I think that we can vote people for people that are less harm than other people. And I think that, you know, that is your own choice, whether or not you do that. Um, I think it can be a good thing to do that, but it's not where we're going to find our freedom. And so that's kind of like the biggest thing that that idea that those labels mean to me. And I think that that system of leftist belief corresponds with sex work in a really, really real material way. Like, I think, I think people might not think they're like, oh, well, sex work, work, that's interacting with capitalism, right? You are selling services for money. And it's like, yes, everything is serving services for money under capitalism. If you want to survive, you have to do that. But I think that what makes sex work really, really radical is that in a, a lot of situations, and this is not all, but in a lot of situations, the worker, I, have complete control over the means of production, me. And that is really powerful. Um, it means that I don't necessarily have to exploit anyone in order to make money. And there are things I think we can do to make it more ethical. Like I know a lot of sex workers buy their lingerie from fast fashion companies, which totally makes sense because it's cheap. Also something that I try to avoid when I have the privilege to do so, because if you have the ability to buy sex toys and lingerie and all of these other things in quote-unquote ethical contexts without worker exploitation, whatever that means, then I think you can make money in a really, really ethical way, which is funny because I think a lot of people don't think of sex work as being even remotely ethical, um, <laughs> but that's more related to morality than what I think of as ethics. 
And I, yeah, I think that that is really powerful. And I think that the legal system and the way that the legal system interacts with sex workers is also really related to the, you know, the way that I believe. Um, in general, I don't believe in like super, super heavy, like government regulation, government to fix things. I'm kind of more of an anarchist in that sense. I think that as communities, it's best for us to like care for each other and support each other and that government invasion of those spaces can really fuck it up and not give us the like protection that we need. And the government doesn't give a whole lot of protection to sex workers. It doesn't. In fact, it actively harms them. And so I honestly think that my slut solidarity has probably meant more than the solidarity I had with other leftists because it was material. My solidarity with other leftists, we were talking about theory. And my solidarity with other sex workers, we're talking about our lives. And I think that lots of people who are leftists, their material reality is completely related to that too. But I'm talking about being in like upper middle class, class settings, in colleges, in the quote unquote ivory tower, talking about Marx. I think the solidarity I felt with those people was not even remotely similar to the solidarity that I feel with other sex workers who fall on a variety of political um political allegiances because it was based on like active persecution and active caring for each other in a community that the rest of the world doesn't necessarily support um and so I think that that was really really powerful that was really well said uh, <laughs> yeah I think I think you uh, brought that tied that in beautifully sorry my my roommate's cat is in my room right now no worries I've been really anxious my neighbors have a donkey and right before we started the donkey was braying really loudly and I'm like oh my god there's gonna be a donkey in the background of this entire episode and I was really stressed <laughs> yeah I think what's really interesting is as Shelby said that was very well said when Shelby originally texted me saying we're interviewing an anarcho-communist I was like oh my gosh, what does that mean? But then when you explain it, that makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah. it almost doesn't sound radical. <laughs> I think the most radical concepts never really do. You know, I think that a lot of times the things that we say to justify not radical concepts are way more, like the way we justify privatized healthcare is way more complicated than saying everyone deserves healthcare, everyone deserves to not die because they're poor. That's a really simple thing to say, and it's really fucking radical. And it's unfortunate that it's radical at all. Or describing a library, that doesn't sound radical. It's easy to say. I think a lot of times what is radical can be said in a sentence, and what is legal is, you know, in all of this fine print and all of this, you know, really, really difficult to comprehend jargon. But I think that leftists also have a really, really bad reputation for jargon and for all of this theory. And I, I enjoy reading theory when it's assigned to me. It's not something that I can make myself read on my own because so oftentimes it is so dense. And I think that kind of is putting it more into the theory than the material. You know, you can read books of theory and know all of these terms and concepts, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have done anything to benefit anyone else. So I think that, I think a lot of times what's radical can be said easily. And I think if you can't say something in a way that makes sense, then you don't fully understand it. 
Again, beautifully said. We are coming up on time. So mm-hmm. Naya, do you have Wait. any? Oh, do you have something, Emily? There's one thing that I wanted to talk to you about before we left about being a lingerie reviewer. So I guess my first question is, what are some of the things that you should look for in quality lingerie or even from a lingerie company? Yeah, so that's hard. I mean, so I, when I look at like review, when I'm talking about like how I do a review, I look at price, I look at quality, I look at design, I look at company ethics, and I look at fit. And I would say that a lot of the a lot of really cheap lingerie you know you get what you pay for but I think what people don't realize is that something like Victoria's Secret which is considered I don't know fancy for people who don't know a lot about lingerie and really like looked down upon by people in the quote-unquote lingerie community is that if you spent maybe $15 more on your lingerie, you could get really high quality, ethically made stuff. And I don't think I have any like phrases that can tell you what is ethically made, what is high quality. As soon as you put it on, you'll be able to tell if this fits right, if the sewing is done well, if the design is original. Um, But I would say that there are some brands that I think are really outstanding. I think that, Playful Promises, they have a lot of lines, including their Betty Page lingerie line. And Playful Promises is a really low, low price mark for their quality. They're high quality. They're not much more expensive than Victoria's Secret or something you would splurge on at the mall. Also, uh, Oi Serana, they have really um, unique designs that are like really good for, I think, lingerie for people who are like maybe thinking that like kind of more hippie stuff, honestly, like they have lots of flower print stuff that's really gorgeous. I think Dita Von T's lingerie has really good price point for their quality. And I think in general, something that I, when I was first interested in lingerie in a way that wasn't like serious about collecting or reviewing or anything like that, I bought a lot of cheap lingerie. And if I had just, if I was going to buy that much lingerie, if I had used that money to buy like I could have bought two sets of really nice stuff instead of a bunch of crap. Um, And even now I'm like, oh my God, that's such a good sale. But if I don't love it, I don't buy it. I only buy things that like, like I save up my money and not everyone has the privilege to save up their money. But if I'm going to be saving up my money for something like lingerie, I know that it's better to like wait 50 more dollars and get what I love and that that's more sustainable than saving $50 on a piece that I don't really like the way it looks. I don't really like the way it fits. I don't really like the ethics behind what it was made for, that kind of stuff. So one of our patrons wanted to know, what's your stance on Amazon lingerie? So it's complicated. I think that obviously Amazon is bad. We all know Amazon is bad. Amazon's really bad. They're awful. And if that is the budget you have, then I don't think that there's anything to be ashamed of in buying Amazon lingerie. I know a lot of sex workers who buy a lot of lingerie from Amazon and from Shein. And if that's what you need to do, I think you should do it. But I also think that it's not the highest quality. And if you have the money to buy from someone who makes their lingerie handmade or from a smaller business, I I mean, I think that's obviously ideal. But I'm not going to bash anyone who buys their lingerie off of Amazon. I'm not. Because I think oftentimes, like there are all of these people who are like anti-fast fashion to the extent that they shame anyone who doesn't have the budget to buy bigger pieces or more expensive pieces. 
When in reality, if that's your budget, I think oh, there are a lot of people who buy Amazon lingerie and wear the fucking hell out of it. And then there are a lot of people who spend a lot of money on like custom made sets and they never wear them. And the more sustainable thing in that situation is to buy the cheap lingerie that you wear all the time. Yeah, no, I'm not gonna, I don't have anything negative to say, honestly. And But if you have a bigger budget, it probably makes sense to spend money at a place that has better company ethics and it has better money for your budget because of the higher quality. Very well, well-spoken answer. <laughs> yeah, Naya, this episode has been so insightful. I, you had so much to say and it was such good information. So we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Is there anything else that you want to add before we go? I don't think so. I think we covered everything. This has been a lot of fun. I can't wait to listen to this podcast. Yeah, so my biggest, I think, social media platforms are Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram, I'm Naya, N-I-A dot Listic, L-Y-S-T-I-C. And on Twitter, I'm nihilistic M-I-A underscore L-Y-S-T-I-C. So go check Naya out on social media. If you want to find us, we're at Candy Girl Podcast on Instagram, at Candy Girl Pod on Twitter. But if you can't remember those handles, go to our website, candygirlpodcast.com, which we are super stoked about. Just came out with some new sticker designs. We think you guys are going to love them. And you can subscribe to our Patreon if you want to help support the podcast so we can bring you guys more stories from more sex workers like Naya. Naya, you were a great guest to have. Really appreciate you coming and talking to us today. And we will hear from you, Candy Sluts and Bubble Butts, next week. Candy Girl Podcast. Fuck me, Dad.